Acts 13, 1 to 5, for a sermon I've entitled The Church, the Spirit, and Missions. I should follow along as I read. Now there was at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. You know, when I was at Northwestern College, I majored in pastoral studies, but I also got a minor in missions. And one of the books that we were required to read was uh, From Jerusalem to Irian Jaya by Ruth Tucker. Now in that book, the author takes a, a biographical approach to the history of missions. So rather than laying out the broad scope, uh, she focuses on individual missionary stories. And one of them that she recounts is that of St. Patrick. Now the Catholic Church considers Patrick to be the patron saint of Ireland, but did you know he wasn't even Irish? He was actually born and grew up in Roman Britannia in the 5th century. And though his parents were Christians, according to Patrick's own testimony, he had no interest in religion. And by the time he was a teenager, he said he was practically an atheist. But then when he was 16 years of age, he was kidnapped by some pirates and who took him to Ireland where he was held as a slave. It was during that time that he became a believer. You know, God often uses hard times to call people to himself. Well, after six years of slavery, he heard a voice telling him that he would soon be going home and that there was a ship ready for him. So he fled from his master and he traveled 200 miles to the coast and uh, he convinced the captain of a, sh a sea ship to allow him to board. Can you imagine what his parents thought when he arrived home after being gone for six years? Well, Patrick was free and he was glad that experience in Ireland was behind him, but then a few years later he had a dream where he saw a man coming from Ireland whose name was Victorius. And he was carrying many letters, one of whom he handed to Patrick. And in the dream, on the heading of the letter, it said, the voice of the Irish. And Patrick said, as he was reading the letter, he heard many voices calling out, we appeal to you, holy servant boy, to come and walk among us. Well, taking that as a call from the Lord, Patrick returned to Ireland, not as a slave, but as a missionary. He faced great opposition and hardship, but he persevered and eventually saw great fruit for his labor. During his ministry, thousands were converted to Christianity. Now, speaking of the Irish later in his life, he said this, Never before did they know God except for to serve idols and unclean things. But now they had become the people of the Lord and called children of God. By the way, the reason shamrocks are associated with St. Patrick's Day is because he used the three-leaf clover as a visual representation of of the Trinity. Now one of the legends says that pa Patrick drove all the snakes out of Ireland. That's not true, but he did something more importantly, brought the truth into Ireland, the gospel truth. Well, Patrick's one of many of the missionary stories Ruth Tucker tells in her book, and I like that approach because in telling the missionary stories through the lives of individuals, it makes it more interesting and relatable. You know, that approach, though, is the one that Luke takes in the book of Acts. Because in tracing the expansion of the gospel witness and the growth of the church, Luke largely focuses on individuals. In the first 12 chapters, it's primarily on Peter. And in the next chapters, to the end, it's primarily on Paul. Well, in this first part 
of chapter 13, it marks an important transition. Before, Jerusalem was the home base from which they sent out the missionaries. But here, we see that Antioch now takes up that role of the church commissioning and sending out missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, in their particular case. Well, to encourage our church and to see how God used this church as a missionary outreach post, we want to pray and ask God to give us grace as we look at the text. Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy. Help us to understand. might not seem like it has a lot to do with us, but it has everything to do with us because you're doing the most important thing in the world, which is calling people to your Son, Jesus Christ, so that he might be praised and gloried and treasured forever. We pray that we would do just that in our church this morning. For we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, two things uh, we see regarding the church in Antioch. The first was it, was it was a thriving church, a thriving church. And secondly, that it was a sending church. Maybe just some background on the city of Antioch. It was uh, founded in 300 B.C. by Seleucus, Nicator, who was one of the four generals who divided up Alexander's empire after that conqueror died. It served as the capital of the Seleucid Empire, and then later under the Romans as the regional capital of Syria. Now, during the New Testament times, it was the third largest city in the empire behind Rome and Alexandria with an estimated population of some 500,000 residents. Well, the Romans ruled the city, but it was really a Greek city in character. And they had people from all around the empire, particularly those from the east. You know, F.F. F. Bruce says that there's some evidence that there were even Chinese who lived in the city at the time. Well, the city was wealthy and cosmopolitan. Had a mix of religions and philosophies, and it also had a large Jewish population. As we saw a couple weeks ago, there were some unknown Christians who, after they were scattered as a result of the persecution that took place, um, which resulted from the martyrdom of Stephen, they made their way to Antioch. And unlike others who were only speaking to Jews, they thought outside of the blocks and decided to work among the Gentile Greeks as well. And we're told that uh, a great number of them turned to the Lord. So that shift in the church from being a majority of Jews and a minority of Gentiles to a majority of Gentiles and a minority of Jews really began here and would continue through the rest of the book. So the first thing we need to note about uh, this church, though, was that it was a thriving church. A thriving church. What does it mean to thrive? Well, economists speak of thriving economies, but what does that mean? Well, it means that the indicators are good. The stock market's up, unemployment's down, saving rates are high, and debt's low. Of course, sometimes what they think is a thriving economy is more sizzle than steak. They talk about the Roaring Twenties, but that ended in 1929 with the stock market crash and the Great Depression that followed. Sometimes they diagnose infants with a condition they call failure to thrive. When your baby's brought in for a checkup, they, they weigh the child and measure it. You want to hear the doctor say that your son or your daughter's at the 90th percentile for height and the 80th percentile for weight. You don't want to hear that she's at 15% for height and 23rd percentile for weight. And uh, you want to make sure that they're tracking so that they're learning to sit up and to roll over and to crawl and to walk at the right time. If not, it may indicate that there's a deeper problem. Well, here's the question, though. What, what's the evidence that a church is thriving? Now, most pastors measure their churches by the three Bs. Bodies, bucks, and buildings. They think that if the church is thriving in attendance, is increasing, and the offerings going up, and building projects are underway, then all's well. But does that necessarily indicate that a church is thriving? Does the lack of it indicate that a church isn't? Let me take the issue of attendance. How much of that is driven by simple demographics? 
I have a son who lives in Plymouth and a daughter who lives in Lakeville, Minnesota. Between 2010 and 2020, Plymouth's population grew by 17%. There's 81,000 people who live in that suburb. Lakeville grew even more. By 28%, they're up to 69,000. Now, if you had a church in that area, what's the likelihood the church would grow in attendance? Pretty good. People are moving in. They're looking for a church. On the other hand, what if you were in a church in Detroit, Michigan? population of that city has declined from 714,000 to 639,000 during that same period. They've lost 75,000 people, 10% of their population. How much church growth would you expect in an inner city church in Detroit? Of course, in a small town like we are, church has to grow to stay the same size because most kids, when they graduate, have to move off so that they can find a job. You know, I worked, uh, when I worked at Perkins Restaurant, I had a guy who was my boss, the regional manager, and uh, he got that position, he said, because of how he performed at the Perkins that he managed down in Florida. It was in Kissimmee. It was on the road to um, Disney World. Now, it's interesting because they had great numbers and, and made good money, and of course, he got promoted from it, but he told me a secret. He said 90% of all of our customers were non-repeat. He said it didn't matter what kind of food or service we got, or they got. He said because they weren't coming back anyways. Now, there's a lot of things that can be hidden just by sheer growth, isn't there? Well, what about the issue of the amount of money that comes in? Does that indicate that you have a thriving church? Not necessarily. A church can have a large budget and high attendance, but when you divide the amount by those who come, you might find out that many people give little and some people give nothing at all. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Jesus addresses the seven churches directly. To the church of Smyrna, he says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. I think he probably means in faith. And the slander of those who say they're Jews but are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, and you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, probably by the people who looked at him, they didn't look like they were thriving. On the other hand, Jesus rebuked the church in Laodicea when he said this, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, and I have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They thought their church was thriving. Jesus said they were wretched and poor and blind and naked. You see, we have to evaluate a church's ministry using the metrics that Jesus used. Faithfulness in teaching God's word and concern and getting the gospel out. Well, by those measures, the church in Antioch was indeed thriving, and it was actually growing, because not of a population shift, but because people were getting saved. Because as it said in Acts 11.24, there was a considerable number who were brought to the Lord. But even more, it was a thriving church because the word of God was being taught by faithful men. Look what it says in verse 1. Now, there were in Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. You know, back in 1992, uh, the Olympic Committee let professional athletes compete in the games for the first time. Before that, you had to be an amateur. That year, the United States uh, put together what they called the dream team for basketball. It included Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Charles Barkley, Magic Johnson, and Carl Malone. All these men were legends in their own time. And the Americans just dominated their opponents. The only game that was even close was uh, against Croatia, which they still won, 115 to 85. They beat the Angolan team by a score of 116 to 48. 
Well, in Antioch, they had a spiritual dream team for leadership. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who Luke already told us was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Simeon, who was called Niger. Niger means black. He was probably a black man. There's a country called Niger, and there's also a country called Nigeria. That's probably the case that Lucius of Cyrene was also black because that was North Africa. You know, though, there's this push in some evangelical churches to make sure that every church is ethnically diverse. It somehow suggested that if you don't have enough people of color, you're sinning. What nonsense. I mean, are the predominantly black churches sinning because they don't have enough white people in them? How about the Hmong church down in Minneapolis? Should they be chided because they don't have enough Liberians attending? There's a large Liberian community in Brooklyn Park, not far from Minneapolis. Now, we don't need quota systems. There's no partiality in the church. We're supposed to try to reach everybody with the gospel. And what color skin they are makes no difference. Well, most of the converts won by the church here were from lower classes, what we would call ordinary people. Indeed, Celsus, an early critic of the church, said that the Christian said this of the Christian evangelistic outreach. He said this: their aim, the Christians, is to convince only the worthless and contemptible people, idiots, slaves, poor women and children. They would not dare to address an audience of intelligent men. But if they see a group of young people or slaves or rough folks, then they push themselves in to seek to win the admiration of the crowds. It's the same way in private houses. We see woodcarters and cobblers and washermen, people of the utmost ignorance and lack of education. Makes me think of the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26-29 when he said this, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to the flesh. Not many were mighty. Not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the things that are wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the insignificant things of the world and the despised things. God has chosen the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But not everybody in that church was poor and from a rough background. Manan may not have been royalty himself, but we're told that he was connected to those in power, specifically Herod Antipas, to whom he was a foster brother. Now, <laughs> what a contrast. I mean, who would have guessed when those boys were growing up, playing in the back of the palace, that one of them would grow up to be a man who would execute John the Baptist, the prophet of God, and mock Jesus, the son of God. And the other boy would grow up to be a prophet of God and a teacher in a prominent church. You know, Madeline Murray O'Hara, she's the founder of the group Atheists, American Atheists. She was a woman who got prayer taken out of the public schools. I got to speak to her once on a radio talk show program I called into. Well, she and her son Bill would go around the country pushing atheism, but then to her shock and horror, Bill became a Christian and an evangelist. But then sadly, a few years later, Madeline disappeared her and one of her sons and her granddaughter. They were kidnapped and murdered by someone who had worked for their organization. And of course, on the Antioch dream team was also Saul, the one we know as Paul, who had become the greatest theologian of the church. So this, these people were well-grounded and solid in their biblical knowledge because they got clear, consistent teaching of the word of God by the dream team. Well, the second thing we need to say about this church, though, is it was ascending church. Ascending church. This is two to five. I mean, what do I mean by that? I mean, they were mission-minded. It wasn't just that they were concerned with the people in their city. They wanted to get the gospel out across the empire. Notice when that passion for missions arose. It says, while they were serving the Lord and fasting. Now, take note of that. 
I mean, some Christians want to be used by the Lord, but in the meantime, they're not doing much of anything. Jesus said, those who are faithful in little things will be faithful in much. I mean, if you want to be used by God, you should make yourself useful to God right where you're at. I mean, it's a lot easier to steer a car when the wheels are moving than when it's parked. Well, it was while they were serving the Lord that it says the Holy Spirit said, set Barnabas and Saul apart for me for the work to which I have called them. Now, by the way, if God, it's God who calls a person into full-time ministry. I worked with a guy years ago who was planning to go to school to be a pastor. I asked him if he felt called by God to do that. He said, no, not really. But he enjoyed being a Boy Scout, and uh, he thought being a pastor would be like being a scout leader. Well, we aren't told how the Holy Spirit communicated his plans to send Barnabas and Saul out as missionaries. It probably was through one of the prophets. The early church had prophets who got direct messages from God. Well, I've never received a revelation from God, but there are two things that I became convinced of in my life that I think were from God. Two weeks after I first went out with Suzanne, I was convinced that she was the girl that I was going to marry. I was like 16 or 17 at the time. Now, some of that may be because that's the only girl who would ever go out with me twice. I don't know. But uh, the second time came when I was 18 and I was heading for the cities uh, to attend or apply at the Minnesota School of Business. As I was driving along Snelling Avenue, I had this overwhelming sense as I stopped at a certain stoplight that I needed to turn right. And when I did, I was right at the front of Northwestern College. I was absolutely convinced at that moment that God had called me to be a pastor that I'd never once thought about that in my life before. Well, 40 years later, Suzanne's still my wife, and I'm still your pastor. Now look what it says in verse 3. Then when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them, and they sent them away. Now if God had called Barnabas and Paul, the church wanted to support them in their work. Not everybody can be a missionary, nor does everyone need to be a missionary. But everybody's supposed to be involved in the work of missions. I think John Piper was right when he said, when it comes to the Great Commission, there's only three kinds of people. Those who go, those who send, and those who are disobedient. The last thing Jesus said to his disciples before he left and went back to heaven was, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded, and lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. So if you're a Christian, certainly you want to be witnessing to your family members, your friends, your co-workers, and your neighbors. That's your Jerusalem and your Judea. But you also want to be involved in getting the message out to the uttermost parts of the earth. The part that you can play is to keep informed about our missionaries, to pray for them, and to financially support them. One of the marks of a, a thriving church is that they're ascending church because churches that believe the gospel know that those who don't hear the gospel of Jesus Christ will perish in their sins. You know, in many ways, the level of concern for missions is one of the best gauges for the spiritual health of a church. I mean, in her book, From Jerusalem to Erinjaya, Ruth Tucker has a chapter entitled The Moravian Advance, Dawn of Protestant Missions. So the Moravian church was the earliest Protestant church, even predating Luther. John Huss, who started the church in Bohemia, ended up being burned at the stake. But it was in the 1700s that their missionary drive really took off. Spearheaded by a man named Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, and often funded by him, the Moravians sent missionaries to the Inuit people in Greenland, and to the slaves in West Indies, 
1741, Zinzendorf came to America where he met leaders of the Iroquois Indians. At that same time, he met Benjamin Franklin. You've heard of the Mohican Indians, the last of the Mohicans? Well, the Moravians sent missionaries to that tribe as well. Eventually, they were sending them around the world. On the other hand, concern for missions waned in the mainline Protestant churches in the 1920s and 30s. In 1938, Pearl S. Buck became the first woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize in literature for her book, The Good Earth. It tells about her experience growing up as the child of missionaries in China. Now, you'd think with that kind of background, Buck would be a big supporter of missions. She was, but it was missions as she had redefined it. She didn't think the heathen needed to be converted, just helped with social programs. And at that time, she was actually sitting on one of the mission boards of the largest Presbyterian churches in America. Well, today, mainline churches don't do evangelism at home, and they don't do missions abroad. They do social work and stump for progressive political causes. The flame of missionary passion first began to flicker and dim, and now it's been snuffed out completely. You see, thriving churches are sending churches. The Antioch church was thriving, so they were involved in sending Paul and Barnabas. And where did they go? Well, the first leg of the journey we read about in verse 4, it says this. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now, Seleucia was the coast... Uh, it was uh, on the coast just near Antioch. And the island of Cyprus is about 200 miles offshore. And so remember that Barnabas lived in Cyprus, so he, this was kind of a homecoming for him. Look what it says in verse 5. When they reached Salamis, that's on Cyprus, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. Now one of the things that aided the spread of the gospel was the fact that there were Jewish settlements scattered across the Roman Empire. And whenever Paul went to a new area, he first went to the synagogue, to the people of God, so that they would hear the good news. As the people of God, the gospel message is supposed to go first to the Jews. As Peter told his countrymen in Jerusalem, it is you who are the sons of the prophet and of the covenant, which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, in your seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you, from his wicked ways. As Paul said in Romans chapter 1, 16-17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is being revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Everybody needs to hear the gospel. The good news. That God sent his Son to save us by becoming a man, living a sinless life of perfect obedience to the law of God. Jesus then offered up that life as a sacrifice for sins for his people. So on that cross, God poured out his wrath against sin on Jesus who received the punishment that we deserved. And when a person trusts in Christ's death as the payment for their sins, then God credits Jesus' righteousness, his record of law-keeping, to our account so that we can stand before him, not guilty, justified by faith in Christ. That's the good news that we proclaim in our church. That's the good news that goes over the airwaves on the radio station. That's the good news, the message that goes out from our church over the internet to hundreds, a hundred countries across the world. That's the message our missionaries proclaim in countries where they serve, Brazil and Tibet, Jordan, Ethiopia, Zambia and Laos. We proclaim the good news. But here's the question, have you received the good news? 
Have you turned from your sins to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior? You know, that's the simplest and the hardest thing to do. It's simple because all you have to do is believe the gospel message and trust in Christ to save you. And yet it's hard, very hard, because you have to turn from all your sins, give up your pride and your self-righteousness, and surrender your life to him. Have you done that? If not, why don't you do that right now? If you do, salvation will be granted to you, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, and you'll be given the gift of eternal life. And if you did, you would show again that the gospel really is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To those in Jerusalem, all the way to Erin Jaya, to Grantsburg, Wisconsin. May God give you the grace to come to him today. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we do need grace. And that grace comes as we hear the gospel message and you open our heart to believe what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, there are many people who know this message, but they still have never responded to it. It's just talk. It's not the transforming power that the gospel is, because it only works for those who believe. So, Father God, we pray that you would give hearts of faith to everyone in our church and to those who are listening uh, to this over the internet and also the radio broadcast. We want people to come to know Jesus Christ and show that the gospel is the power of God for salvation.